I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. My name is Jeff, and with me here is Hoy. Hi there. Hello. And this week is episode six of the Appendix N Book Club. And Hoy, what is it that we're reading and discussing today? We are reading At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's right. Yeah. Uh, It was first published in 1914 as a serial and then was uh, first in book form in 1922. Um, what, what version are you reading there, Jeff? Well, I am um, ashamed to admit that this beautiful first edition paperback that I have is all marked up and highlighted by me because I do take notes while we're reading these. Uh, but yes, so that's, my, that's my, my humble brag that I have completely vandalized a first printing paperback. It is a 1962 ace paperback first printing with a beautiful Roy Krenkel Jr. cover. And on the cover, we've got a half-naked man and woman who are walking through the jungles and waving at uh, two other half-naked people who are riding dinosaurs in the jungle. Uh Uh Uh, And how about you? Yeah, well, I actually say that for my first reading of this, I read the uh, public domain copy that was on uh, Roy Glashan's library. That's freeread.com.au. Um, there's a very large repository of uh, public domain Edgar Rice Burroughs works there. But the copy I have in front of me right now is the ace paperback version of uh, 1981 with a Frank Frazetta cover mm. of a Mayhar, the pool, uh, Mayhar coming out of the pool uh, going after a young maiden. Uh, lovely cover. And here's the back cover copy. They found themselves in a prehistoric land, thousands of miles underground. When David Innes and his inventor friend pierced the crust of the earth with their new burrowing device, they broke out into a strange inner world of eternal daylight, a world back in the Stone Age where prehistoric monsters still lived and cavemen and women battled against cruel, inhuman masters. The story of the struggles of these two men in the savage new world of Pellucidar has, has made At the Earth's Core one of Burroughs' most outstanding bestsellers. So there you have it. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, and I, I, I also, one, one thing that Hoy and I have discovered is that we have different opinions on how to pronounce um, Pelucidar. Um, yeah, that's frightening words. <laughs> and there's a very good chance that I'm wrong. And we, we, we very intentionally decided not to look it up and find out who was right or who was wrong before we recorded so that one of us can just be the fool afterwards. Right. So take your votes. <laughs> one of us will get voted off the island. <laughs> exactly. Let us know which one uh, which one is uh, wrong, wrong, wrong. And the next time we read another... Not only that, wrong on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and the next time we read another Edgar Rice Bur- Burroughs book, it will be the book entitled Pelucidar. He means Pelucidar. (laughs) So we'll figure it out before then, but you've got plenty of time to let us know uh, who you think is right and who you think is wrong. Um, But speaking of uh, the Pelucidar series, um, Pelucidar series, see, now you've, now you've, you, you, oh. um, (laughs) Pelucidar rules. Pelucidar might be winning. I I, I actually, there's a very good chance I'm the wrong one here. Uh, (laughs) I admit it freely. So, um, but speaking of Pelucidar, uh, on the appendix N, next to Edgar Rice Burroughs' name, it uh, he is not somebody who has an at all. So it is not necessarily implied that we should just go out and read everything by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And that's a lot of books, by the way. It is a lot. So Tarzan is not included. The Land That Time Forgot series is not included. But what is specifically included is the Pellucidar series, uh, the Mars series, and the Venus series. And... One could ask, Jeff, why did you choose to do Pellucidar first? Jeff, why did you choose to do Pellucidar first? Thank you for asking, because it's listed first. Uh (laughs) Aha. Good reason as any. Uh, Normally, you would start with, uh, I guess, John Carter, but this is still early in his career, so it's as good a place to start as any. It's not like it's, you know, in the 1930s with the Venus series. 
Yes. The uh, the John Carter of Mars series is, abso- is absolutely more iconic and probably has a deeper, firmer root in the foundation of Dungeons and Dragons. I have not read them. I can't actually say that from experience, but anecdotally from speaking with other people, that is generally what I hear. However, this is this is the series that we're starting with. Yep. So bear with us. <laughs> so before we go into the library and discuss what we thought about the book and how it relates to gaming, we're going to go over our Hygaxian word of the day. Love it. Today's word is... Sumerian. Sumerian. Sumerian, like Conan the Sumerian? Like Conan the Sumerian. Ah, there we go. All right. Uh, Sumerian is actually a word in addition to being uh, the type of person that Conan is, mm-hmm. uh, being somebody from Sumeria. Uh, Sumerian means dark or gloomy. And the way that it is used in At the Earth's Core is uh, in its description of the city of Futra. At intervals, tubes pierce the roof of the underground city and by means of lenses and reflectors transmit the sunlight, softened and diffused, to dispel what would otherwise be Sumerian darkness. like it. I like it. By the way, this is the uh, second appearance of lenses and reflectors as a uh, rogues in the house the last time we saw on the Conan, lenses and tubes and reflectors. That's so, true. There we go. Um, although I guess this predates uh, Rogues in the House, so maybe that's a little thing that caught uh, Robert E. Howard's eye. Uh oh. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Again, Ron just... to you, Howard. <laughs> I just pulled that out of nowhere, so don't we're, take my word for that. We're on to your game. <laughs> All right, so let's head on over to the library and discuss at the Earth's core. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I, I really like this book. It's kind of batshit. I mean, <laughs> it really is. It is all over the place. You know, and I, I think about how, how I watch movies. There are good movies and bad movies, and there are movies I love and movies I hate. And I can love a bad movie, and I can hate what is technically I can recognize a good movie. At the Earth's core, it bounces around so much that sometimes it feels like a good book that I'm really enjoying, and at other times it feels like a bad book that I'm really enjoying, but I am always really enjoying it. I would definitely have to agree with that assessment. It's, it's <laughs> just, you know, it just rockets along. You know, sometimes you're saying, like, mm, this doesn't make any sense, but okay, I'll just read another couple pages and it'll <laughs> bring me back around, so no yeah. problems there. Yeah. And I would say that the scene at the Mayhar's Temple which is the Frank Fazetta cover of the 1981 edition that is in Hoy's hands right now, has got to be the scariest, coolest scene from any book we have read in the appendix end thus far. Um, I would agree. I was not expecting something so genuinely horrific in Edgar Rice. You know, Burroughs. Burroughs just has a reputation for high adventure, mm-hmm. um, and we think of... Uh, Tarzan as we know him in the movies. Uh, I have recently read the actual first novel of Tarzan, which is a lot darker than people think it is. Uh, but yeah, we don't we don't necessarily expect, you know, this, you know, sort of monstrous, sadistic attack from the Mayars. Yeah. And, and it's truly horrendous. So it, it's well, and great. let's back it up for a second. Yeah. So first off, um, Hoy, how did how did we end up in this area? How, how did we end up at the Earth's core, and what are the Mayhars? Okay, so uh, David Innes is uh, good friends with his uh, professor and mentor, uh, Abner Perry. Um, and David Innes is kind of a, I would say, main uh, of many parts. He's a college baseball player, a handsome, rugged fellow, uh, camera, you know, uh, quite intelligent. Not a scholar by any means, but quite intelligent. And Abner Perry uh, develops a new mining machine, which he uh, intends to sort of pierce the crust of the earth. But as things will do, they go wrong, and they end up uh, tunneling, far, you know, for days and days? Is it days and days? or is it week? Yeah. I think it is, yeah. yeah. It's and, several days. Yeah, almost dying. They go through an uh, incredibly hot zone, an incredibly cold zone. Run out uh, of air. Run out of air and um, end up, they think that they've sort of just maybe come at an angle, but they've actually g- gone you know, through the crust of the earth as opposed to sort of coming at an angle and coming out to another area of the earth into this lush jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have to back up and say that uh, typical with Burroughs, there's a framing device where this other person who may or may not be Burroughs actually runs into David Innes in the middle of the Moroccan desert 
Uh, and he says, oh, thank God, a white man who discovered me. <laughs> uh, so he was very excited about seeing that white man. Yeah, so it was a, uh, the framing device, which is uh, present in a lot of Burroughs books that I've read so far. Okay. Um, but anyway, let me come back to it. So Having read only one, uh, I, I, I'm not familiar with that device yet. Um, that, uh, yeah, just a little bit of that in uh, the John Carter books and certainly the first Tarzan book. It's okay. Sort of a, um, anyway, so... They've broken through into this lush jungle. They don't realize at first that they're on the inside of the earth, so to speak, but they, but they start slowly start noticing that things are weird. There's no horizon. The time of day never changes. Mm-hmm. The sun's like three times larger than it should be, and it's always hovering over them. And then eventually they encounter various sort of uh, megafauna that have been extinct for generations and are sort of variants on yeah. you know, giant sloths. And, and hyenodon, plesiosaurs. Yeah, and so it's a bit weird mix, right, because it's... You know, mammals and creatures from the you know the dinosaur era, but you know, all mashed together. So it's kind of, it's kind of funky. Later on, we discover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Later on, we'll discover that time is funky in Pellucidar, mm-hmm. um, and it's not clear that time is funky because the days don't rotate, or time is funky, therefore the days don't change. Um, it's not clear chicken or the egg type situation, but it is actually a weird conceit that I did not know of. I, I knew this was a hollow earth story, but I didn't realize that there was this weird time flow issue in the story. Mm-hmm. That that was a, an entirely new element to me, and I, I thought I knew something about that book. That was a brand new element to me. And this might be, and I think this might be a tangent within a tangent within a tangent now, but I'm going to go ahead and go on a tangent for a second and say that, like, also, it's kind of just really insanely cool what he does with time. Because it makes me think of, like, like somebody, like, smoking a joint and being like, time is a construct, man. Like, it's it's all, it's all, uh... It's all an illusion. Time's a flat circle, dude. <laughs> yeah, but like that's totally what they're doing here, you know, because at that one point where David escapes and he's gone for what's got to be two or three months, he comes back and Abner Perry's still in his library and he's like, you've been gone for a few hours. Right. And D- David Innes is totally uh, offended. He's like, I've been gone this whole time and like you haven't even noticed. Right. Like well, what kind of a friend are you? He's like, all these struggles, almost yeah. died. He's you like, know, no, I'm telling you. Get, I came back to get you. you yeah, know. from my perspective, it has literally only been a couple of hours that you've been gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's wacky. It's, uh, I don't know why he threw it in there, but it's great to have it on top. You know, it's like it the cherry on the Sunday. It's so. another fun layer. Right. Uh, but yeah, t- tell us about the Mayhars. Okay, so the Mayhars are sort of the master race of this uh, inner, inner world and they're sort of evolved... Uh, female-only pteranodons, essentially, mm. or, or rampharynchuses. Eat human flesh. They have a uh, slave race called the Sagoths, who are mute but can communicate telepathically. Is that correct? Oh, the Mayhars are telepathic. But the Mayhars are telepathic. Right. The Sagoths can actually speak to the humans. They right. can, yeah. Right. They have their own language. They're kind right. of giant gorilla men. Right. They're gorilla, orcish types, brutish, certainly. Um, and there's various cave tribes uh, or Stone Age tribes, Um some of them who are desi- uh, described as being quite like uh, Amerindians, uh, Native Americans, um, and others are uh, more Neanderthal-y. Um, I don't know if there's any uh, sort of African people. I can't remember if that off the top of my head. In there. Well, <laughs> and that part is actually one of the unfortunate parts. But yes, if you don't, rec- if you uh, recall. When they first get out of their iron mole, mm-hmm. they end up encountering all of those kind of ape men mm-hmm. who gather them up and take them to their tree huts. Ah, right. And the way Edgar Rice Burroughs describes them is man-like creatures strikingly similar to the Negro of Africa. Ah, uh-huh, there you go. And it's like, you're saying that they're strikingly similar to, to the Negro of Africa, but you're also calling them man-like. Mm-hmm. It's pretty uncomfortable stuff. Yes, and... but. Interestingly, though, I mean, I don't think he sort of uh, automatically dwells on this, though. I he mean, does not. He just sort of throws that in there. And I'm not one of those guys who says automatically, oh, the person was just a product of the time. Because there's people who were, even back then were frothing racists. But I don't see that as uh, part of Edgar Rice Burroughs' makeup. It's just a thing that he threw in there. Again, that would be uncomfortable for many people in the modern audience. But it's not a, like, okay, let me just describe people in the most offensive way possible. Mm-hmm. right? And then maybe that's why I just... Did not remember that, so uh, <laughs> just didn't it just didn't ping on me that much. But you know, maybe that's a deficiency on my part. Um, uh, but yeah, the the Mayhars are, are great villains. I mean, they're they're oh, yeah. uh, they're uh, you know they're odd because they're villains, and, and certainly from the human point, they're they're horrible. But they're not 
sort of actively malicious. It's the Sagoths are more. The Sagoths are sort of, you know, your your hall monitor, yeah. you know, high school bully types. Or know? like the the cruel slave masters. Right. You know, right. they're the ones cracking the whips. Right. And, and the Mayhars are sort of a little bit more removed from that. They have these appetites where they just, you know, people and, and, and do it in sort of a very ritualistic fashion that's kind of horrible. And that's the scene in the temple. Yes. Um, by themselves, they don't actually have any particular, you know. And they, they actually let their human prisoners kind of just wander through the cities at will. They don't – they're this, I guess they just consider them kind of, you know, domestic animals and you don't mm-hmm. really worry about it too much. But yeah. that's how David Innes and Abner Perry are able to research and, and come up with schemes to escape and, and, and fight off the Sagoths and the, the Mayhars. So. Well, the Mayhars are so above the humans. Yeah. I mean, they they communicate with each other through what Abner Perry thinks is a sixth sense in the fourth dimension, right. uh, which is how they communicate with one another. So even their basic way of communication is so far removed that they don't even comprehend that the humans are even sentient. Right. It's not, yeah, then he says, uh, I think he says specifically, it's not what we think of as ESP or telepathy in here, right? Mm-hmm. It's, as you say, it's this other form of communication going through another dimension. Yeah. Again. And, and I know that they communicate with, uh, the Sagos and the Mayhars communicate with each other through like a kind of form of sign language. That is one kind of, there are many holes in the story. And one of the holes in the story for me is if the Mayhars recognize that the Sagoths are sentient enough to have kind of their communication with. It seems strange to me that when the Mayhars are, uh, when the Sagoths are looking at the humans and moving their lips and the humans are looking back at them and moving their lips and having shared facial expressions, it seems strange to me that they would recognize Sagoths as sentient creatures and not humans, but whatever. I mean, you know, they're maybe dog people, not cat people. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot of moments in this story, in these stories where you kind of take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. I, I just say, you know, Pour on the, you know, pour on the steam and keep all, all full speed ahead. You know, just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, that's, that's, I think how you have to read Howard. If, if you think about it too hard. Burroughs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So if you think about Burroughs too hard, Howard actually holds up. If you think about Burroughs too hard, um, you'll just, <laughs> you know, you'll have a headache. So. Yeah. Because, and for me, the, the flimsiest one, which I totally got a, I totally got a kick out of though, is their big plan to escape from Futra, the city of the Mayhars, is to murder some Mayhas and then just put their bloody skin over them and then walk out as though they are these like pterodactyl uh, super race people. Uh, and I'm sorry, but like wearing the bloody skin of a recently murdered animal is not going to make you look like you are that animal. It's not going to give you the skeletal... Uh, outline of that creature. It's not going to give you, you their, are their such gait. a stickler for realism, Jeff. <laughs> uh, equally, though, I mean, equally ludicrous, but just hilarious is when they think that they are going to return to the surface with uh, David Innes' now wife, Diane the Beautiful, yes. and she's been replaced by a Mayhar wrapped in a, in a, a robe, a cloak, or something like that. Yes, yep. <laughs> right. and, he, and he manages to travel all the way to the surface of the earth without once peeking under the robe to see that his, his beautiful bride is not. In fact, you know, a uh, seven-foot-tall pterodactyl. <laughs> so, but you know, without that, we would have no sequel. So, you know, cracking on, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> but yes, so uh, not to harp on it, but that scene in the temple, though, it's so creepy because what's happening in the scene is so we've got David Innes, and he's up here with his new friend Jaw. Uh, Jaw is like his tribal buddy that he's met. Right. They initially have a, a sort of knockdown, drag out battle when he yes. first meets him. And then he they, thought he was going to steal his boat. Right. And then uh, I guess he rescues Jaw from drowning, right? At that yes. Point. Right. And so then they become fast friends. And from being eaten by the plesiosaur, I believe. Right. Or maybe, no, or eaten by something. Maybe that wasn't the plesiosaur. Well, everything wants to eat you in, in Pelicidar. Everything not. wants to eat you. And so uh, David and Jaw have gone to the Mayhar temple and they're looking down. And here is like, here is the Mayhar. And like, it's. It's um, hypnotizing these these poor innocent slave men and women, but it's specifically there's this one woman who at first he was scared because he thought it was Diane the Beautiful because he's traveling around trying to find her. Right. Whew, it's not. She turns around. It's just some. It's just some other random dark-haired slave. So now we don't care because it's just some rando who's being murdered. Right. But uh, the 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 Mayhar is staring at the woman, hypnotizing her, and then has her walk into the water. And then the Mayhar goes into the water as well. And when she comes out of the water, she's like missing limbs and she's like bleeding everywhere. And every time that she like reemerges, like more of her is just completely gone. But she's got like these 
dead vacant eyes and all of the other slaves are just watching on in horror. Yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, high quality horror fiction. And again, yeah. not necessarily something you associate with Burroughs off the bat. So it is the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, it's a great scene. And it's um don't read it to your kids, you know. If you're if you're thinking it's, you know, all Disney Tarzan with Burroughs, it's not. So, <laughs> so looking at this this is one of the stories in the Appendix N, or one of the series in the Appendix N, where its connection to Dungeons and Dragons and the creation of fantasy fiction might not be as immediately obvious as, say, uh, our last episode, The Hobbit. Right. It's not high fantasy. It's it's nominally science fiction, although we know that that can be an artificial uh, boundary. Um, mm-hmm. So, And it was obviously set in the present day at the time it was written, and there's nothing to sort of specifically date it to being 1914. Even when you're reading it, you could easily read it and think it was happening in 1950, 1960, or whenever. And that's, you know, David Innes mentions being good at baseball and sports and stuff like that. So it's it's definitely not saying to you, oh, okay, we're in here with wizards and, and elves, and, you know, we have longbows and chainmail and that kind of stuff like that. So, you know, if you're looking for a high fantasy hook, it's not that. It's an adventure. It's a yes. tremendous adventure, but yes. it's not a high fantasy hook that's true um having said that i think there's probably a lot we can mine from this what what, what would you say that you could get out of this from well before we get into that i was actually kind of curious what you think or we could talk together about this about what we think was taken from this for the creation of dungeons and dragons because he does specifically name this series so obviously gary took stuff from this and you know looking at it like yes the advanced dungeons and dragons monster manual does have dinosaurs in it, and it has a lot of the um, Pleistocene megafauna, you know, so certainly giant sloths, hyenodons, plesiosaurs, cave bears. There's a pterodactyl who he describes as a dragon and describes it very much like a dragon at first. So there are many creatures that I think um, were were clearly ported over. Um, I think you could set this as a... um... Not quite a sandbox, but a mini sandbox. It's an environment, right? Mm-hmm. So something on the level of what later, for example, um, X1 in the BX series, you know, Isle of Dread, something like that. So it's a, although we know that this is the entire inner surface of the world, we're so far, you know, in one area of this mm-hmm. world. Um, although, again, it's hard to tell with scale because we don't know because time is funky. So we don't know distance also it becomes mm-hmm. very funky. Like when um, he goes to look for, Ja has, you know, says he's able to hide from the Mayhars because he only he knows the path to his village. Yeah. Yeah, when there's no stars and there's no there's right. no moon right. and there's no path of the heavenly bodies, there's no north and south. Right. There's nothing to this. Just pure memorization if you want to navigate. Um, I think that you what you can take away from this is a funky environment that has rules of its own, and mm-hmm. that's uh, many mega dungeons, many wildernesses in sort of D and D fiction. So if that that is something there that is there. Um, yep. There is. I guess David Innes is nominally, if you were going to put him in a game he would be nominally a fighter and there's no such thing as just a pure adventurer class that's true and i w- one description i love of him and this is this shows you also how humble he is too uh on page nine of my copy he says my physique has been the envy and despair of my fellows <laughs> you <got it. laughs> yeah, well, false modesty never got anyone anywhere Jeff. <laughs> good point so <laughs> so no i think there's a a uh the temple, the Mayhar city, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, it's an environment to, to, to both exp- explore, but with the real dangers in there. So I think it's I not literally a dungeon, but they're, you know, again, the C1 module, I think, mm-hmm. right, and, um, back in the day. Yeah, uh, as a hex crawl, it's very effective and right. very intense because you've, you've also, like in a hex crawl and kind of like in, you know, because we've, we've also talked about how um, Dungeons & Dragons is supposed to be kind of like a, like a, a early medieval setting, uh, but in early medieval times, it, the, Europe was very populated at that time. But in something like at the Earth's core, you have these small little pockets of civilization with vast, dangerous areas between these pockets of civilization. That's very Dungeons and Dragons. That's very at the Earth's core. Right. Again, you know, the Sagarths aren't literally orcs, but you have, you know, sort of a master villain with a series of servitors. So mm-hmm. the, the Sagarths, uh, fu- you know, fulfill that role. Um you know, the various cavemen tribes, you know, can be enemies or can be allies. So that's a, an element there, you know, you know, for you as an adventurer, do you negotiate? Do mm-hmm. you attack on first sight? You know, you're in a new environment. Who, who is who? What's the, who are the players? So I think that's a, 
you know, that's there. I mean, I don't think Dungeons and Dragons was ever intended just purely to be straight combat, you know. I mean, oh, of course not. So, um, you know, certainly chainmail, but not Dungeons and Dragons, because, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise you'd just keep playing chainmail, right, if you just wanted to fight. I think there's that there. The, you know, the temples, the, you know, temple is very much a, a dungeon. It's not, you know, a dungeon as described, but, you know, and then also when they go into, when they're trying to escape through the Mayhar City, they go down into the catacombs yep. below there. Absolutely. And, you know, find their way out. So I think there's a lot sort of, as setting is, is clearly the main element, and then obviously the villains. So mm-hmm. whether or not it's literally high fantasy, um, it's there for you mm-hmm. to, to pick. And so I think that's, um, you know, and clearly Gygax and many of his generation, you know, Burroughs made adventure to them. Right? Yes. So. Yeah, and we haven't actually um, gone over any of the books on the appendix end that are just kind of purely sci-fi either, because there are plenty of stories where it's literally they're getting on spaceships and going to other planets. So those, from from a 2017 perspective, it's difficult to, on the surface, see why those things would be part of the the foundation for Dungeons and Dragons. And like like how on the surface it's difficult to see maybe how at the Earth's core is a direct influence on the creation of it. But then once you do kind of give this, give it a deeper look like you're talking about, it does become much clearer as to like, oh yes, absolutely, I can see how this was like foundational reading. Right, and, uh, and again, we're going to keep on harping on this. I think the, um, you know, this was all fantastic adventure literature mm-hmm. fiction in the day, and that you know this the genres of uh, science fiction and fantasy were not so hard coded. Yeah, in that and adventure thing. fiction and, and weird fiction and right. horror fiction. Right, right, and you know it took more book editors and magazine editors later on to sort of say, oh, this is this category, and sure. you know it's easier to market that way. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I believe that the magazine that first published. Uh, this story was actually called All Story, so it implied that okay. any kind of story was welcome in there as long as yeah. it, you know, attracted an audience. So that's great. You know, I don't know enough about that, but I just just for the title, it just seems to me would be great. Sure. So to go to your question that you asked me before, I, I took us off for a moment. You you asked me like what I could take from this and kind of add to my that, that is what you yeah, asked, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff in here that you can absolutely do that with, and one that I think is a fun one is um, how here we have David Innes who's come to this other world. Um, well, actually, we can start even there. You know, when we talked about Harold Shea, I was, uh, we were talking about how you can take your characters and bring them into completely other dimensions. Here, you're essentially bringing your characters to another dimension, but it's not even, they're not even doing interplanar, interplanar travel. Like, this is kind of like a hidden world within their world. But one of the things that I really liked kind of specifically about that was how they, how the story worked with bringing kind of the outsider into this new world. So here you have uh, language gaps and the characters, uh, they end up spending like a few months potentially, they have no idea how much time is passing on this uh, uh, being chained to this long string of slaves. Right, when they're marching to the uh, Mehar City, uh, Futra, right? Mm-hmm. And they're being chained to, you know, some slaves who they become friends with. And then, of course, Huja the Sly is in the chain there. And, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. And during this, at first, the two of them have no idea how to speak this language. Over time, they learn it. And when they learn it, David ends up falling in love with Diane the Beautiful. And Huja the Sly One uh, tries to uh, do some kind of uh, not-so-subtle moves on Diane, who does not appreciate what Huja's doing. So uh, David knocks him out. And little does David know that he's now done this, this great... Dishonor to yeah, dishonor to Diane yeah. because he didn't instantly claim her as his own. So because of that, she's like a slave to him or something like that. But the reason I bring that up is these are customs of another culture that your characters don't know. So I think that's something you could really bring into your game. Is like you can have when your characters in, meet a new kind of person in a new area, give them strange foreign ways of viewing the world and basic interactions that make them unique. Don't just make them another person from the same culture who you just have to learn their language because their ways of life and the way they view the world is going to be inherently different. Right. That's a good point. I think um, sometimes we just kind of hand wave that for the sake of convenience. Um, 
But I, I it's a missed opportunity. It is a missed opportunity. And again, obviously, we've talked about this before, that it depends on the context in which you're playing. Again, if you're playing a convention game, uh, an open table game, sometimes you don't get to you know, take advantage of that. But I think if you're running a campaign, uh, I think you should take advantage of uh, all the tools in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's terrific. I think the, the alien, the clash of cultures, learning the ground rules, um, I think is, is a... Definitely something that's, you know, it's there in all the adventure fiction, so it's surprising it's not there in the game, so to speak. Or it's not in the game as played by many of us at the table. You know, maybe it was there to begin with. Um, but, you know, that's another problem with, I think, many role I don't think any role-playing game has ever come up with a really satisfactory set of language rules. Mm-hmm. Um, to sort of cover the difficulty of communication. I could, you know, if you guys know of any exceptions, please let us know. Um, but, you know, even games of per- uh, purport to be incredibly realistic, like GURPS or you know, uh, RuneQuest, uh, still tend to have a, this problem with the set of rules. And then D&D just says you know a language or you don't know a language. Um, and there's no real uh, mechanism that I recall for learning a language or how long it takes you to learn a language, what kind of proficiency you have, you know, um, learning a culture. Um, again, I mean, that's mostly a role-playing opportunity. I'm not saying it should be hard-coded. Yeah, yeah. That, and that, that's where it gets difficult because certainly, you know, I... Very early in the in the kind of game design world, you know, we didn't have rules for all these things, and people were getting frustrated, like, well, how do you do this, and how can you realistically portray that? And as we came up with more and more rules for these kinds of things, it became clear that the more rules we come up for every single thing, the harder it is to actually uh, make that work in the fiction. Uh, so it, it, it can be difficult to find a way to kind of make those things work without relying too heavily on a unique rule set for every yeah, everything yeah. you want to accomplish as a character. Right, right. And, you know, so this gets us to that debate of rules, not rulings. Um, you know, and I think that's a useful um, framework, but I don't think it should be a mantra because it, then when you start using some, anything as a mantra, it kind of takes away thought, mm-hmm. you know. But, uh, I mean, rulings, not rules, I should say. Yeah, because um, I think a really great example could be, you know, if, if your characters were in a very similar situation where they have been, uh, where they've been kidnapped and they've been put into chains. And I feel like in a, in a classic role-playing game scenario, the first instinct would be, how do I escape now? But maybe making it clear that escape now is either not possible or is possible, but is very unwise because eyes are all on you. So it might be better to kind of wade this out for a little bit. And while you're on this massive journey, your characters can start to pick up the other language and, and learn it that way. Right, right. And rather than worry about whatever your int bonus is and how many languages you have on your character character sheet, just allow it. Right, right. Uh, and not only this eyes on you, you're in this middle of this wilderness with, as we say, no supplies, nothing yes. like that. So whereas if you arrive at the final destination, you know, you may have allies, you may have tools at your disposal. Uh, and again, this goes to the thing I've been saying over and over again. Let the players do things that make story sense and don't punish punish them for that. Maybe story is not the right word, adventure sense, but but uh, don't punish them for that and give them opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I think that works better than, and then let, him know, let them know that they still have agency. A lot, a lot of player, uh, players want to escape because they feel like, oh, I know you can't, you know, can't box me in, man. I, they hate me. I will not submit. I will not submit. But then, you know, the logical consequences, maybe they get killed by the Sagoths, you yeah. know, right there, and then you have no adventure. So mm-hmm. you say, listen, if you go with this, you will have an opportunity to have the adventure, mm-hmm. right? And so I think you have to make that clear, and you have that trust and that buy-in with yeah. your players and say, listen, you know, this is the framework. If you go with this, you will have an adventure. You will have your opportunities. But I just want to hand-wave this part, just let you know that you're chained up with a bunch of slaves, mm-hmm. and you're going to be marching with them. But along the way, you know, we'll have these little um, vignettes, where the, you can, you know, make allies, pick yeah. a point in the language or whatever it is. And that, you know, so I think you have to make it interesting for them. You have to give the trust and maybe by giving the trust is by giving them little small rewards while mm-hmm. holding back the big reward yeah. for later. I agree. And and you'd mentioned something, sim- you'd mentioned in, in our previous episode about The Hobbit, you were talking about how when we were discussing parting characters from their gear, you were saying that it's important to make sure that tone and that kind of intention is, is set from the very beginning. Uh, and I think that something is similarly true here, where if you're playing the kind of, kind of game, if you're playing like a fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons game, where you are always going to be, if not the strongest person in the room, at least able to destroy everything around you with very good, with an incredibly high chance of survival, that's a very different kind of role-playing situation and role-playing game 
than the kind of scenario where we're describing right now, where if you are going to escape from your chains, you might get murdered. So it's important that if you are going to do something like that, that that's part of the tone that you set up from the very beginning. Right. And, you know, we play all types of games. Sometimes you're just in the mood for power fantasy, cutting mm-hmm. down as many orcs as possible. But I definitely like that sense of prevailing over, you know, heinous odds. Yeah. And and, and having the, you know, said, oh, I didn't think I was going to pull out of that one, but I got out of that one by the skin of my teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and again, it's, you know, it's the table that you play at, you know, knowing your players and having the players know what you're likely to do, that you're, that you're going to be fair no mm-hmm. matter what. You're going to be, you know, it, it could be a really hosed situation. But if they play through it with, you know, wits and guts, you know, that they have a, a decent chance of coming out of it. So, yeah, you know, it is important to, you know, lay down some the tone, the, the groundwork. Um, again, that can be difficult in a convention game, a, you know, an open table type situation. And so there you may have to rely on, uh, you know, having one or two other players that you already know sort of sort of educate the rest of the players as yeah. they come in. And say, oh, this is the kind of tone we have at this table here, and this is how it goes, you know, and, and um, you know, go with it, and you'll enjoy it. Yeah. But I would even say that this potentially, kind of the way it's been played out, almost could work as a convention game. Obviously, not in the scope because you couldn't fit this into four hours. But from the from the very beginning, that David and Abner get out of the Iron Mall, they encounter what was it like a uh, like a was it a giant sloth? I can't remember if it was or a giant megatherian. Yeah, or, a giant, giant sloth, or it could have been a megatherian. They, so they encounter some gigantic creature that like wants to murder them, yeah. but it's still like it's threatened by them. It thinks that it wants to hurt them, so he's trying to kill it first. Right. So your very first encounter is with this gigantic monster that you have absolutely no chance to deal with because you've got no weapons in your hand and you're just like two little small people. Right. Um, so that right there tells you from the very beginning, like we're going to put you in situations that are going to be really scary and you're not going to be able to get out of the situation just by punching and stabbing. And certainly, say, for example, games like TCC, which we both play, you know, help with the, you know, having a luck mechanic mm-hmm. and things like that. But I, again, I think it's um, as a game master, as long as you're not purely mechanical, say, oh, this happens and this happens, you mm-hmm. know, say, okay, okay, what are they trying to do? Okay, what would make this, what would make this thing more interesting? Yeah. Right. I think the 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 thing, sh- the situation should always be what would make this more interesting, uh, not necessarily what would make it more fun. Because fun, you know, fun can be cheap, right? Mm-hmm. I think, but what would make the situation more interesting? What would raise the stakes? You know, what would lead to the next interesting thing? Um, and I think that's definitely Burrow's strength is, is just going from scene to scene to scene to scene to yeah. scene, you know. And I've never played Dungeon World. Um, I've only played one Apocalypse. No, I've played two Apocalypse World Engine game. Apocalypse Engine. Yeah, Apocalypse oh. Engine. Yeah. I've two, I played two Apocalypse, Apocalypse Engine games. I played... Monster Hearts once, mm. and I played Spirit of 77 once. But I, I feel like using something like Dungeon World actually might be a really fun way of exploring uh, like this particular series. Hmm. Hadn't thought of that. Again, I'm not as familiar with sort of the story game side of the spectrum. Okay. Um, um, I think uh, this would be fine in a sort of a, you know basic role-playing RuneQuest mm. set, role set. Not RuneQuest literally, but that, that engine, because it's not about pure leveling up. You know, you're always borderline fragile in yeah. sort of a, a GURPS. Or, GURPS gets a bad rap, by the way, because everyone thinks it's just about max min-maxing your character and half points here and half points yeah. there, whereas actually basic mechanic of GURPS is incredibly elegant. I agree. Um, so I think that would work very well for this game. The yeah. actual playing and running of GURPS is yeah. is very intuitive and yeah. very easy and yeah. very fun and very simple. The process of creating characters yeah. and of creating non-player characters and environments and things like that yeah. does lend itself to power gaming. Right. Power gaming, Excel spreadsheets and yeah. like that. I think I think if you if if you were handed a sheet in GURPS yeah. For, for this kind of a game and you're working with what you got, right. then yes, absolutely, this could really work right. well for that. And I think they've had to acknowledge that by creating templates for characters now mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff like that. I guess GURPS is borderline old school, although this is not a old school podcast as such. But, um, you know, I, again, I think in D&D, um, you have to accommodate this by sort of your narrative skills and not by rule sets as such. You know, the, the kind of burrowsy and adventure, you know, leaping over chasms and doing that kind of stuff like that, you know. Because mm-hmm. um, D&D just tends to be like, a, you know, Oh, you fall twenty. You know, you fall and take twenty d six damage or something like that. Yeah. It's not. Uh, oh, you know, uh, jumping and just making it by the skin of your teeth, kind yeah. of stuff like that. So, uh, and it's not D and D as written doesn't have 
sort of the, the just pushing your luck, doing something that you shouldn't really do, but if you do do it, it will sort of have rewards, um, not as mechanically. And then, of course, DCC accommodates that quite well mm-hmm. beca- because of the luck mechanic. And I guess they have now sort of new push mechanics in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition, you know, like yeah. I said. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. And then people have also reinterpreted how to read rules. So, you know, the role's still there, the skill's there, but, you know, you have 20% drive doesn't mean that you're going to crash 80% of the time when you drive <laughs> in Call of Cthulhu. Thank it you. just means that... <laughs> right. It just means yeah. that if you're... Only a, roll it if your chance of failure actually means something bad is going to happen in this situation. Yeah. Not in, on a routine check. Right. And something interesting, right? So it's only yes. if you're, you know, barreling down a dark highway at 80 miles an hour and it's raining, mm-hmm. do you roll a driving check, right? Yes. Or something like that. So, um, and that wasn't necessarily spelled out explicitly, but I think good game Masters always knew that mm-hmm. that was needed to happen that way. Again, we've gone away from D&D, but, you know, I think it's legitimate. It's old school. Uh, there's a lot of um, influences there. Well, the although page. this is an, the Appendix N podcast is about the Appendix N, which is in the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master Guide, it does not mean that I personally don't think that we need to stay focused just on D&D. Right, I right. think we can talk about all the games we want to play. Sure. Anyway, so, again, we've talked about it before, and, and, you know, maybe it's a failure of imagination on our part. It's a, you know, D&D doesn't necessarily mo- model this stuff as well. And that's clearly why some of these other systems arose. You know, the D100 basic role-playing type systems, mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, the GURPS, you know, man-to-man, which later became GURPS. But I think that D&D Engine, I guess, by virtue of being the most familiar, is in many ways very moddable, even though it's not explicitly ri- written to be modular. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the question would be how we would take this if we're going to bring this to a D&D style game. What would you do that would allow you to run this kind of game if you're going to run this as a D&D style game as opposed to using one, uh, some other game system? In many ways, the D&D rules as written would not emulate at the Earth's core the way at the Earth's core is written. So I think the first thing you would need to do or the first thing that I would do in a situation like that is I would accept the limitations of the rule system at really perfectly emulating this kind of a story because i mean right away the like the level system and saving throws and starting off as a first level character with potentially 1d4 hit points that that is not really in the style of this story so the first thing i would do is i would i would accept the limitations of that Uh, But then from there, I would just kind of, I guess, make it about the atmosphere and the environment and the kind of creatures that you're up against and making it really clear that not everything needs to be dealt with with your weapons, uh, that you will you, you will encounter creatures that you are meant to run from and that you are meant to use your your brains to deal with. Is that kind of what you're looking for, or...? Yeah, I think that's in the vein. I think that maybe that's something forgotten in sort of, again, sort of more recent I guess post uh, fourth edition D and D. I guess it seemed to be everything was geared towards a certain challenge level or combat. Mm. And yeah, that started in third edition. Th- started in third edition, but it's very, uh, you know, um, became very tactical, right? Yeah. Um, every every encounter had a challenge rating, right? Yeah, which it's like, what's that? You know, again, from playing first and uh, earlier. Um, There's encounter levels and challenge ratings. Yeah, and and <laughs> I don't even know how to read them because it's what, like how many, what is an encounter? I guess you have need a chart for that. So there, there literally is a chart that tells you how many challenge, how many CR3 characters creates an right. EL4 encounter. Right. Now, uh, I have not played that, so I don't know if, like, my players would be completely incensed if they had a encounter that was not supposed to be in their challenge level. So, again, you have to make it clear by description. I guess in first edition or old school role-playing, you would not, unless the players had somehow memorized the monster manual, which obviously some people did, you yeah. would just describe this thing and say, oh, it seems really large. It's, you know, at least 10 feet taller than you, and it's, you know, it's frothing at the mouth. It looks really dangerous, mm-hmm. right? And then it would be up to the player to decide whether, you know, they would fight or run or mm-hmm. somehow else deal with this. But I think it seems like in sort of more modern games, like, oh, well, I know what the challenge rating of that. You know, that's the challenge. You know, no, no, that's that's clearly shouldn't be in this adventure. That's that's twice the challenge rating that, we, you know, this is supposed to be. You know, that, that can't happen, you know. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> um, you know. Yeah, because I'm sure if we looked at, if we were to stat up David Innes and stat up that first, that first monster he encountered, there is no way that that would have been a balanced encounter. And, no. and that's... No. That's fine. That's right. fun. Right. You know, that's that's what makes it scary. Right. Uh, but that 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 is something that's interesting about role-playing games and Appendix N in general is the idea of, like, hit points as being 
the system by which your characters live and die. Because I, I, I feel like there are, there are kind of two ways you can go about this, because in appendix and literature, generally, protagonists don't die. They really do survive everything. They get banged up, they get scratched, but they never get maimed. They never get like they lose never a get hand. maimed, right. and they never die. With right. with there are exceptions, but very few of them. Right. So it seems like there are kind of two ways in which you can pursue that in your role playing games. And on one way, you can do the 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 old school style of making the game super lethal, which isn't very appendix n because your characters will die quite easily, but it is very appendix n because you're constantly afraid of dying and the fear of death is very real and that's very appendix n. Or the flip side of that is the kind of newer versions of D&D where you're, it's very unlikely that you are going to die. Uh, so that kind of keeps this kind of heroic character who's gonna survive everything. That aspect of it is very appendix n. But then also there's no fear of loss or failure, and that feels very un-Appendix N to me. Right. Um, again, I think DCC uh, splits the difference quite well on this because the, you know, you don't level up to like tremendously high levels, 20th, 30th level. You know, you're lucky if you see a 5th or 6th level character. So, you know, the hit point pool is not greatly uh, exaggerated. Um, so there, you have that frailty, but you also have the luck mechanic. You can push your luck, yeah. just take more risks than you would normally. And then you also become conservative when you have very little luck left to represent sort of the fear without having a, explicitly a fear mechanic like Sanity and Call of Cthulhu or Fear Checks and some of the other games. Although DCC has this reputation as just sort of a sort of hack and slash beer and pretzels in, in some corners, it actually uh, is actually quite sophisticated for a relatively simple rule set other than the spells um, and actually allows for sort of emergent role play without having explicit systems necessarily in place. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And uh, for those who aren't super familiar with DCC, uh, one of the things, uh, the the character creation process is you roll these zero-level characters who have almost no hit points. They don't even have a class yet. They just have a basic occupation. So you're like a chicken butcher or a mushroom farmer. And you go out on this major adventure, there's a mob of you, and most of you will get slaughtered. And the few that survive are the people who then end up leveling up and taking a, a class in wizard or a class in warrior. And I don't really find much much of an appendix N... Precedent uh, for that. Precedent for that, thank yeah. you. Um, however, that said, it's a really fun way of creating your character and getting attached to your character. But I would say that as you get to like second or third level in DCC... I feel like that is like the sweet spot for like your Appendix N style protagonist. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like most of these characters are like second and third level DCC characters. Right. I think uh, we had mentioned a few episodes back in the Conan episode that Daniel Bishop had done a write-up of uh, Tarzan and of um, Conan. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, he writes them up as uh, sixth level characters, so okay. which is the equivalent of basically a 12th to 15th level character in classical D&D. So not... Uh, quite powerful, but not superhuman by any means. Sure. And Conan, I think, is definitely much stronger and more capable than most of our protagonists. So that that seems to jive with what I'm saying, too. Right, right. So, yeah, I think there's a, uh, you know, the, again, I think that's, a sweet, as you say, a sweet spot. And it was pretty much, i say, maybe fifth to eighth level in, in first edition uh, AD&D was mm-hmm. really uh, where I had the most fun when I was adventuring. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think there's that just that right balance of risk and reward. And you know, obviously, you have to keep on being up the game if uh, if you're starting to talk about 15th, 20th level characters, borderline divine characters. Um, I'm going to bring back to one of my favorite hobby horse systems, which is uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, because again, the fighters are the only ones who improve in terms of the hit rolls. They get, you know, everybody gets more hit points or gets more spells and more spells. And so you don't have this constant inflation of uh, monsters' powers in terms of like, you know, getting like incredibly high armor classes and what have you because um, it's not needed because basically improvement in hit, hit rolls is not going to be so steep. And I think DCC is somewhat similar in that regard in the sense that while the other classes do improve, it's not so this very steep curve mm-hmm. in terms of uh, you know their improvement in the hit rolls. And so I think that um, the Lamentation solution is uh, quite elegant. The uh, DCC one's a little bit more swingy, but it, lets, it allows for a lot of fun at the table because every die roll means something. You know. And part of the reason why the DCC one doesn't end up leading to this massive overinflation is because the highest level you can get in DCC is 10th level. 
So you're not dealing with characters who have a plus 20 on any of the roles. Right. And I've only played open table so far, so I've never gotten a character anywhere close to that. I think the highest character I've gotten is a second or maybe close to third level at this yeah. point. So. Yeah, totally. So. so I have a question for you. Sure. There, um, there was one part of this that did make me kind of cringe a little bit, and I'm curious what you thought of this part. There's a moment where David and Abner decide that they are going to make humans the kings and the rulers of this area. And specifically, they say, why uh, why we too would be the means of placing the men of the inner world in their rightful place among created things. Only, only the Sagoths would stand between them and absolute supremacy. And I was not quite sure, but that the Sagoths... Uh, owed all their power to the greater intelligence of the Mayhars. I could not believe that these gorilla beasts were the mental superiors of the human race of Pelucidar. Um, or Pelucidar. <laughs> I'm going to win that one, by the way. <laughs> you probably are, I'm sure. Uh, but, like, so here are these two dudes who come down here. They meet these, like, potentially evil, but maybe they just don't understand humans, but, like, these, like, massively superior intellectually and psychically and potentially magically creatures. And they also encounter these like giant ape men who are clearly stronger than them as well. But here they are trying to figure out how to essentially like genocide <laughs> both of these two races and take control over the the the, the center of the earth. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about that? I don't know if it's genocide. We don't know. <laughs> well, we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, certainly imperialist. And um, yes. but you know. Uh, uh, how would the Spanish conquistadors have felt when they first landed? There was, you know, they must have known that, you know, there was only a hundred or two hundred of them, and then, you know, this vast continent with this civilization that they both disdained but were fascinated by yeah. at the same time, um, that clearly dwarfed anything that was in Europe at that time. You know, so I think that's a thread that has been here in sort of Western history and adventure fiction mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. And that's a great example of, uh, of you know, being products of their time because we're also products of our time. And in 2017, here, like reading that like super kind of colonialism uh, is, is, is very kind of foreign and strange to, to, to my brain. But then here I am like living in this world where I'm reaping the benefits of colonialism. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, and don't all – isn't the goal of any role-playing game to get to the domain the domain game? You know, <laughs> right? Get up to 14th level and get your uh, – you know, carve out your little kingdom in the wilderness or something like that. I know? guess, but is it really? Because I, I don't know. But I feel I'm like just saying, nobody actually ever wants to do that part of it. Well, who knows? I mean, Adventure Conqueror King system is completely built around that. That's true. And although I've never played that, I've heard great things about that game. Yeah, so Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, it's – um. You know, it might feel troublesome, but I think that if you were plopped down in any strange, hideously dangerous environment, you would want to master your environment in some mm-hmm. way, right? And by doing so, if that means mastery of the other things that are around there, then that's just how they feel. You know, I mean, sure. you know, Abner Perry's got the brains, and actually, he's in many ways more imperialistic and scarier than David sure. Innes is. And David Innes is just like this guy. You know, he's just like. Hey, he's a good guy, and he plays baseball. He's you sure. know, incredibly strong, you know, and not very fast. So they actually make a point of saying that he's not very fast. That's true, yeah. yeah. He's a slow runner. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's this dude, you know, and he's strong. But, you know, he's, things aren't, you know, he's not lazy, right? Yeah. He's just, um, so, you know, by, you know, by his efforts in this dangerous world, if he carves out a place for him, then, you know, that's as it should be, right? Well, and then I get, I get the desire to like, okay, I'm going to take Diane the Beautiful and we're going to find a little corner of the center of the earth where we can be safe and call it our home. But that's not what they're doing. They're like, how can we conquer the center of the earth and put man in his rightful place as the superior creature down here? Right. In fact, you're not the superior creature. Well, he wants to put in his rightful place. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, it's manifest destiny. It's, again, you know, if there's nothing to struggle against, then what's the point, right? Yeah, That's sure. In, in the adventure fiction, again. I mean, this, you know, in our daily lives, you know, you know maybe maybe not. But Yeah, know. and the story does end with him uh, presumably going back to the center of the earth with guns and books and chemicals and right. technology. So I am really curious to see where this is going to go. Yeah, this is, uh, is going to be a good one. I think there's, uh, you know, uh, lots of ways it could go. And uh, we know that with Burroughs, you know, it'll be, you know, at least one twist per chapter. So, yeah. 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 So we can go ahead and wrap that up there, I think. What do you think? Yeah, I think this, you know, I, again, you know, the virtue of doing this uh, series uh, is that there will always be more to talk about. Mm-hmm. And we can always circle back around to things that we see that have pop up over and over again. So um, I think that's, uh, you know, quite a 
quite a good uh, place to stop on at their score. Sounds good. So please, uh, if you haven't already, please go to iTunes and give us a review and uh, rate us. That will help us become more visible and help other people find this podcast. You can also send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. And you can visit our website at appendixnbookclub.com. Right. And there will be show notes and reading resources and other links on the the website. So please do check that out. Uh, Jeff, what are we reading next? So next up on episode seven will be Fletcher Pratt's The Blue Star. And episode eight will be Philip Jose Farmer's The Maker of Universes. Great. So we'll see you next time. And in the meantime, read on. Read on. Read on.